welcome to a new episode of the Frontend Happy Hour podcast. An important part of shipping features to production is having solid automated tests. In this episode, we are joined by Janaki and Benoit to talk with us about automation at scale. Janaki and Benoit, can you give brief introductions of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Hi, my name is Janaki Ramachandran, and I am... I lead a team which is doing automation infrastructure for uh, both client devices and for some of the server components. And uh, my favorite happy hour drink is probably a red wine, sometimes beer. Hi, and thank you, Ryan, for receiving us. Uh, I'm Benoit Fontaine. Um, I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix. Um, I've been at Netflix for over seven years now uh, under Janaki. And uh, I've been working on uh, test and device automation, building the infrastructure for testing. As Janaki mentioned, it's mainly in the client teams, which is the, the app, the Netflix application that you have, you know, on TV, mobile, browsers. But there is also uh, more use over time uh, in the server side as well. For drinks, uh, I, I am French, so I love wine. So a red wine is also great. Uh, but when I need, you know, something more cool, chill. I definitely like beer and Belgian beer in particular, like three pots. Right on. You guys both good choices on the happy hour beverage. That's great. Um, and Benoit, you and I probably started at Netflix around the same time because I think I'm just over seven years now too. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, 2015. Oh yeah. Yeah. Same here. It was like April 2015 for me. I don't know what time, which month you were, but. Uh, March. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very close. I love it. That's really cool. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's give introductions of today's panelists. I'm the only panelist today. So uh, I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. Now, what did we decide today's keyword is? Release. Yeah, we try to avoid test and automation. <laughs> yeah. So so release is, is probably going to come up, but maybe not as much as tests and automation. So that, that should be good. <laughs> All right. I, I thought as a good way to level set as we dive in uh, to the topic, it's like, what is automation? Like, I think automation can mean a lot of things, but like, what is automation around testing? Yeah. So test automation is uh, is not something to to be to consider as a binary thing, like you have automation or you don't. It has a, a right range of, of domain. It's a gradient of automation. So you can have like full automation or partial automation or, or no automation at all. So usually what it involves is, you know, it starts from cataloging tests, meaning, you know, uh, you have a, a set of tests that you know you have that you could run. So you need to, to, to know, catalog them. Uh, then at some point you need to choose, select and automate the selection of the tests you want to run in certain condition. And then when it's time to, to run them after selecting them, uh, there's automation around executing them in an automated manner. Um, then you want the reporting to some system to be automated. You, know, you don't want people to necessarily do spreadsheets uh, by hand when they report. Um, and there is then, I would say, action that happened around the test. So test themselves, you know, they do their own validation but you might want to trigger actions in an automated fashion based on what happened with the test. So first you could maybe have some statistics, uh, you know, about what happened in the test that you want to auto-calculate at the end. Or you might want to trigger action like notification, you know, this test fail, I need to notify this. Um, so so notification alerting, there's, there's a, a different variety, closing JIRAs, opening JIRAs automatic. There's a variety of, action you might want to, to take by, automatically that has been defined by the user based on, on, on test having run. And then obviously, uh, you also want visualization. Uh, in particular, when you are at you know, scale, there's so much data that you need a very good way to go through the data, find patterns, and do failure analysis on that. Um, this is purely on the, I would say the test side, right? But in order to be able to, to, to automate testing, usually you also need a supporting infrastructure that provides features that allow automation of those tests. So that's also another aspect, right? And um, so 
if you take something like Jest, for example, this is something in the JavaScript world people know very well. You could consider that test automation. It has, you know, you, you, you put your test in some folders. Um, uh, so this is a way to catalog tests in Jest. And then, then you can select them. You can define patterns for selections in Jest. Uh, Jest will run the test, execute the test. It will do by default some, let's call it local reporting, right? But you can have reporters that do some other type of reporting, but it's local reporting. Uh, usually there's no really test action here. Um, and for visualization, I mean, just by default, print on the console. So you have some type of visualization, right? So in a way, just provide a, some level of automation that checks a lot of the boxes here I mentioned. Um, but although it's checking most of the boxes, it's still a gradient here because the way just provide each of those uh, functionalities is very local. It's like on my computer, I had to check out my, my Git repo uh, and, and run Jest. And so this is not distributed. This is not centralized. I mean, the data are not being sent together and aggregated somewhere. So if you have a lot of different things you need to test, uh, all of that also needs to be automated. So Jest, in a way, is, uh, you could say, a, a very local version of automation. Um, and the type of infrastructure usually uh, like we, we take care of is trying to really take automation to the, to the next level in terms of uh, distributing it and, and making it also work cross languages because here Jest is going to be JavaScript only. Right. So this, I would say, about test automation. Yeah, I, I think I want to kind of add on to what Beneva said. I think you know, many times we think about the phrase automation, test automation, we think about frameworks, hey, what framework do we want to use and, and, and what um, language you want to choose and how do we put them in some CI systems like Jenkins or something, right? But then here, as you want to take it to scale, then you might, uh, what we provide as an infrastructure or what we talk about automation is kind of the combination of every one of those things that uh, Ben was reporting all the way from hey, I need to think about what I, what I need to run, and here I have defined what my tests are, and then how am I going to manage it over time? All of that is what we consider here as a test automation. Yeah, I like that you both talk about this in the sense of like the local and that kind of at scale or, or more distributed. Do you both recommend having both? Like, is it one or the other, or is it like a combination of having the local test, automated testing, and then also more distributed? Well, so you can consider... A distributed system being a system that distributes local executions, right? So yes, you will have both. Uh, you will have local aspects that are going to be distributed and reporting to some centralized pieces and systems. So this is how we do it exactly, yes. Uh, so Jest is, is one of the things that can be used with our automation and reporting to it can happen and it can be used in a way where the selection execution, uh, even the test action and the resolution of everything that is run through Jest can be done through our system. And I think the the cool thing, what you mentioned is, you know, if you, this is, it goes, touches on the developer empathy, right? If you're a developer, sometimes you want to run the test locally to um, to see how the, the test actually behave with your changed code. So taking it from local um, and then building it to how it can run without you being in the in the loop, because now we have merged the code and it just runs locally, but it has to merge with the everything else. That is an, also an important part of developer empathy and the automation infrastructure, if it's designed properly, then you can run, run locally and also run at scale. Yeah, that, that's a very important aspect of when designing um, uh, automation system is you have kind of a balance here. On one side, you want to have everything working in a generic way, so everybody can benefit from everything. But on the other side, you have your the users of the system. They say, you know, I like to run my own framework, my own thing there, and I don't want to think of everything. Or I don't want to have constraints. I don't want to have to learn uh, new things. Uh, I mean, other things. I mean, what I do locally works. Why do I need to do anything else? Uh, I mean, I should. I mean. I think it's fine. Look, and so the 
one thing to keep in mind all the time is trying to leave uh, as much freedom to the tester and I mean as possible. So every time a constraint is added, it really has to be needed and providing uh, an actual value to the person uh, having to deal with it so that it that person understands, okay, yeah, I do that, I get that. Not just purely, oh, I need to fit into this system and therefore I have to do that, but you don't necessarily get the value. Uh, and so that was an aspect in, in uh, the, the automation system we are, we are building is that we wanting we wanted the developers to be able to uh, look at results uh, that we brought in the system and be able to uh, take action on it directly by reproducing the issue locally. So like you you need to be able to say okay I can run it locally when it's reported I can see how it was run and run it locally so like from local to remote back to local right um, without friction and at the same time supporting uh, as many I mean in a generic way so you you want people to be able to use whatever system locally they they like Netflix in particular. Um, based on its um, the culture, the teams are, are kind of small startups uh, a, a bit. And so a lot of teams have their own way to, to do things in an efficient manner. And so there's not um, always a um, common pattern into doing things. And so having the, the system of being able to embrace that as being very powerful and, and key to the success of it. I'm assuming that's quite challenging for a team like yours. Like, how are you able to, you know, understand the needs of all the teams that are leveraging this, this framework and this, like all the automation that's there, how do you make it possible so that you're understanding those needs of each of, you know, the engineering teams that are leveraging that and make it extensible? I'm sure there's a lot of challenges that come along with that. Yes, it is very challenging. But I think one of the things that we have tried to do is understand one customer very deeply and then extend it to um, still have the abstractions in place to extend it for other teams. So we have a very complex client team that we partner with um, and um, we we make sure it, it, we are able to consume the results and iterate very quickly um, on how the automation should be designed for that customer. At the same time, I think you know, Ben was the engineer designing the system. He had designed and put abstractions in place where all the assumptions needed for the local client does not become a requirement. It can still be abstracted out. And um, you know that leads us to, as we get to, understanding more and more customers, do the design patterns still make sense? And where should the control be? Um, and how can we not have as a central automation team more control, but really the last mile and the end problems can be owned by the team who are closest to the problem. That is one of the important part of the design principles. Again, to, to be, again, to reiterate, I think Benova can add more to this, we try to start and understand one customer really, really deeply and then have abstractions and design in place where we can support a lot of the teams, but leave the local problems like language selection, for instance. Some people have their code written in C++. They want to do testing. Some others have code written in um, JavaScript. They want to do testing in a different way. Some teams need devices. Some teams just need a node environment. And how they design the uh, automation framework should not be a constraint imposed by the infrastructure. Or how they want to design how, what kind of test cases they need to do a release. Um, I think that's the key word here. Um, the release is something that you know we don't want to. <laughs> yeah. The client teams might do a release once every three months, whereas the server-side teams might do release every um, week or twice every week. And that should not be, an, um, uh, th those workflows should not be imposed as a constraint in the automation framework. So these are some of the principles that we used as we have built up and scaled up for different teams. I'm sure that Benavasi was designing, he had other things to talk about as well. Yes, um, 
I, I can um, talk more about what you just said, Jamaki. Uh, it might sound a little ab very abstract what we're saying here. It's like, oh, you can uh, abstract without forcing on abstractions. And so how do you do that? I mean, it seems like uh, you're not doing anything. <laughs> so there's no constraint. Uh, the, the key part is, to, is to, to understand the responsibilities and who is best at which responsibilities. The responsibilities when it comes to an automation you know, ecosystem frame, I mean, system framework is uh, on what's what's the shell around the testing, right? So, so uh, keeping track of all, all the pieces, the test, right, the cataloging, or choosing what's selecting, um, the uh, exec getting the thing to get executed, getting the, the thing to be reported. I mean, the reporting itself, not necessarily, but having something to report to, okay? And then have something to visualize what was reported. In a way, as a tester, uh, you, it's not something you're necessarily trying to, to build. What you want is to be able to use something that exists. And so what you do as a tester is, I want to write the test, and I want to have full control on how I write my test. So I want to be able to choose whatever framework I want. Um, then obviously on our side, we need to then um, um, have plugins for that framework or hook into that framework so that we can allow reporting. Um, or we need, we need to, um, to have abstraction in place so that the person can register their, let's call it their, what we call runner. So their, their framework runs their test, right? And so, so into our system, so then our abstraction that get to select test and then execute them can run their runners, but they have the full control of their own runners and their own test, the, the, the step, the validation in the test and the test framework. And everything the test do is, is all controlled by them. Um, and so, and one, one other aspect to that is when it comes to devices, a lot of the testing that is done at Netflix on the client side is uh, testing that the Netflix application works on the multitude of devices onto which it's uh, shipped. And so we need to have automation of devices. Uh, so the test needs to, to, to be able to start a device, trigger action on it, and, and, and check that everything is working. And there's a lot of variety of devices. As an automation uh, platform, let's call it, we, we've built uh, a service that that uh, provide a unified interface to controlling device. Right? You want to start a device, stop a device, install the bill on the device, uh, maybe suspend the device, resume the device, um, things like that, you know, very high level that, that those applications, uh, those tests will want to do, uh, you know, starting the application on the device. <laughs> but so we've built, for example, that, that service and, and other things around it, like reservation. Of uh, people that run tests, they want to get devices, but they don't want to uh, work on each other and say two, two different tests get the same device and they have a conflict. And so this is something as a tester, you don't really want to take care of, you want it to be taken care of. And so that's something the attention will, will take care of. And the way we take care of is, is not like the way we decide to design that internally is not going to impact the user in terms of constraint. At the end, they get a device and they know it's not going to be used by anybody else right, until they're done with it. Now, the interface are part of our service. The reservation is, uh, is part of our service. But then behind the scene, we also need to interact with the devices themselves. And this is where this is actually delegated to you know, what we call device handlers that can be owned by the test team themselves. And this is part of the flexibility again, or the making sure we don't add too many constraints. As the platform team for automation, we don't have the, we are not experts in all the devices the tester work on. The tester and the, or the developers on the team, like maybe the mobile team, you know, that does Android, iOS, they know very well how those devices work and can be automated. And if they want to take care of building the, the handling for it, they can, and then that can be plugged into our system. So we should just talk to, to your system, I mean, to your handler. Uh, and so uh, obviously if the, the team are, are not, don't want to do it or cannot do it, we can help and take care of it. 
But the idea is we are trying to delegate and distribute as much as possible the responsibility to the party that is the most able to do it so that removes friction and, and leads uh, to better quality and things that can do faster. Same, the, the timeline for change is much faster. There's no need to, to, uh, to have constant uh, meeting between teams to say, well, we need that now. Could you work on it? And we become bottlenecks. We try to distribute as much as possible to not become bottleneck. I, I really like that too, is that there, you're adding a lot of flexibility in how you're approaching it. You know, what happens if a team, like let's, for instance, says, you know, they want to use some brand new framework. It's not just, it's some new framework that I've never heard of, you've never heard of. What does that look like for your team? If, if I'm like, hey, my team is now using this X uh, testing framework, what does that mean for your team? Yeah, so you, you could see it a little bit as, uh, like in jest, you can do reporters. So we would, we, we, I mean, they could take care of it, but uh, we could help. To say, okay, this is this new thing, and uh, that need to be able to report to to our system, and so let's build um, you know um, a plugin for it, so that when you run it, it does report to it. Right? And so we have a list of uh, you know different plugins slash reporters that uh, that we take care of. Some other that some teams can take care of and maintain, and they they all you know uh, allow reporting to our system. Now, this is on the reporting side. There is the other side, uh, because there's two, two levels where we touch with the, the user test, I mean, the, the test, the tester test, which is executing it, and then it, so which is like, it's called the input, like that's at the beginning, <laughs> we execute it, and then the output, which is reporting to us. Right? And so this is the, the two surface. And so on the reporting, the output, a report, something like a reporter can, can take care of that. On the um, executing the input side, this is where we have, uh, we, we built uh, abstractions where you can basically say, in order to run the, the test, uh, this is a Docker image, right? So you can run this image with a parameter that, that gives you the list of tests to run and just take care of running it and make sure that you run the plugin to report to us. And that's it. And so this is extremely flexible for us because you take care of making your own Docker image to execute the test. So you can choose the reporter you, I mean, the, the test framework you want. Uh, on our side, what we do is, so you just need to register this, what we call runner uh, with us. And, and then we take care of selecting the test for you, give that list as, you know, as parameter to your image run your image, take care of distributed the run of the image across as many instances as, pos as needed for resource-wise. So we also take care of distributing that load. Um, and then those you know, containers, those runners, they do then report to us. And then everything that's before, which is you know, selecting the test, and everything that's after, which is analyzing the, the result and doing action, is outside of you know, the the surface uh, layer of, of the test. And so here, there's no, no more cons cons constraint. And, you know, you were asking how many, uh, what do teams come and ask? They do happen, but not as frequently because most teams do have some level of normalization. So we, we, like Benoit was saying, we have an abstractions for, uh, for Jest um, where we are able to run those test cases. More recently, we were working on a C++ uh, integration because some teams wanted to do testing in C++ and they want it's to catch two. Catch two, yeah. Um, and, and we want to uh, be able to report. It is not really unit test. It's still integration test. This unit test is part of the build. But when you have integration test cases, then it is really something that you want to report and have it lived uh, for a longer time. So yeah, we do work with those teams um, separately and, and get their requirements to make sure that they are able to onboard into our system. There's, there might be currently... You know, we have Carbon on Brothers, we have Jest, we have XE X, X, uh, test on iOS, JUnit on Android, uh, and then uh, custom uh, homebrewed uh, test framework for on-device testing for the TVs. Uh, that's really the... And Catch2. And Catch2. That's, that's yeah. the list today. So it grows, you know, one new framework 
every other uh, a year, maybe every other year type of thing. It's very slow because, I mean, even though the team are independent from each other, as I mentioned earlier, engineers like to uh, to go, uh, I mean, to use standard things, right? And so if there is a standard system that already exists, um, that's what's going to be used. And so we try to, to target the standard one, uh, but sometimes for some teams, uh, there's no standard that, you know, like like for the on-device de on testing for TV client, this is something that we have some uh, specific needs that uh, we can just run in an environment uh, so we cannot easily run something like Jest. Um, so sometimes custom things are built too. So you also mentioned a challenge, which is devices. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't even understand what that means because like even just, you know, maybe they're just building for mobile or they're building for web, but it's like you throw in TVs in there too and PlayStation, Xboxes, uh, set-top boxes. Like there's a lot of things that Netflix is running on. And I am I would love to hear a little more on like what's, uh, what challenges you all face. Like what happens if a device fails in the middle of a test? Or, you know, how do you even deal with that ecosystem of, of all the devices that are out there? You want, you want me to go, Janaki? Yes. Yeah. Fun yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you, your last question in particular is, is, is the most uh, important one, which is how do you deal with failures of, of devices? Uh, before getting there, um, maybe to, to give an idea of the amount of devices we, we run with uh, internally, we have, um, what was the, the number about? Just 12,000 virtual devices and about 6,000 physical so devices. Physical, yeah. This is the amount of devices we, we, we have. Uh, and and so, so the physical one, now we have labs, which have a bunch of devices connected to the network there or over USB and then control over the network. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, cloud instances that emulate things. <laughs> they can emulate, for example, um, an Android emulator, or it can be just, lin I mean, basically a Linux version of Netflix uh, for, for just for reference, reference application that we, we run test on. And this is, you know, using GPU and instance with GPU in the cloud because it's, um, we do a lot of testing on that too. You mentioned about TVs and, and, and other devices, Ryan. Yes, we do have, you know, a lot of these physical devices or mobile devices and physical, de I mean, other, other TV devices like um, game consoles, Xbox, PS4s and, and TVs and Roku sticks. Um, a lot of these are physical devices that we are running automation on every day. And the scale is about, you know, we run about three and a half million tests every single day. So it's, it's pretty, pretty large. That is a ton. Like even just hearing the the sheer volume of devices and the tests running like that, you know, we started off saying at scale and like this seems to be a large scale that you were all dealing with. Yeah, just a little parenthesis since you talk about scale. Um, the more you scale uh, in terms of amount of, of test, the more the visualization and the aggregation of data or, or how you are able to go through the failures is important. Because at the beginning, you don't have a lot of tests. Therefore, you don't have a lot of failures. And therefore, you can kind of go through them individually. But then over time, you know, when you run 3 million tests, I mean, you need to think that behind the scene, if you have one percent of failures, <laughs> that's still that that that's that's what that's um, thirty thousand, right? Thousand ten tests that, that that have to go to go. We have to go through, right? And so, how do you go through that? Uh, and, and so we, and I'm going to end the parenthesis after that. But we do have a system that catalog failures automatically. Uh, earlier, I mentioned failure analysis as part of the automation. We have system that um, can automatically categorize failures to help you. Uh, so then later uh, you can split between things that are automatically categorized versus unknown. So you can focus maybe on a specific category of failure or unknown failures and try to understand them and maybe get them to be categorized automatically in the future. Uh, failures can be automatically tied to existing open tickets about failures. So the idea is you want to get from 30K to, you know, 100 uh, of new things because the other, you know, 20, 29K was, was 
uh, none, right? It just happened again, type of thing, uh, because there's an open ticket for it. Um, but we can maybe we can come uh, talk about it. That's a very interesting topic for your analysis. Uh, but we are talking about devices, and originally when we developed uh, the automation platform that uh, that we built, it was primarily for the client teams. Uh, and so which, which, which involves device every, every single time. It's not always the case anymore. Now there are teams that do not use, uh, I mean, actual device for their testing, uh, but, but it was originally definitely the big focus. And what, so what you don't want to happen is have device failures impacting the result of your test in a way that makes the result, uh, you, uh, that you cannot, you cannot trust the result or you make it a failure, right? And then people say, well, I have failures, but I don't know. It's, it seems to be uh, half of the failures seem to be infrastructure or de and device failures. Um, in a way, you need, it's like when Google started with the, the, the search engine, you know, they build everything on top of commodity uh, hard drives. And the idea was to say, well, we know the hard drive can fail and we need to build it around it. Uh, so that's the same here. We know that device can fail. There can be multiple reasons for which they have issues. Uh, one is we, we didn't build the device. They, they are from other manufacturer. They might have bugs that you have to work around. Uh, that's one. Second is there might be some issue in the lab. Things can go wrong sometimes, you know, network or power. Huh? And we need to be able to, to handle uh, this. And so what does it mean to handle it? It means we need to know when an issue happens that it is related to the device or the device environment and not to the, the test validation itself. And so a lot of effort is taken into making sure we, we are able to always categorize issues uh, to the, the resp responsible party, which is the device. In our case, what we're looking for is device versus uh, slash device environment. And when this happens, then our automation can take care of it in different fashion, uh, one of it being to, well, we know it's it's a device issue, so it's not your fault. So we're going to just rerun this test and you will not know about it. Uh, it will just, it, for you, it will look like as a, as a user that of our system, it will just look like it took longer to run your test. This is different than just rerunning your test automatically because it failed. This is not the same thing because um, a lot of system that are not able to properly associate issues to device slash device environment, will then have to fall back to, well, we have a lot of failures. It seems half of the time is devices. So let's just always rerun. And, you know, and if I run three times, it, it's going to, to work eventually, right? So let's rerun until it passes. When, when you do that, you have a massive uh, low-pass low filter on your results. Uh, <laughs> any, any actual, uh, like, race condition of your product, uh, you know, sporadic failures or bug, actual bug of your product might be filtered out because of your of this automatic retry. So we, we try to not do that. Uh, I mean, that's our goal, to not do that at all. And instead, uh, always detect that the issues are related to device and then take care of it internally within the automation without the, the tester uh, knowing, I mean, the tester can know it happened, but when it, when the tester goes on the uh, the dashboard to see the result, there will not be noise that says, hey, I retried your test. You don't want that to be noisy. You want to be, that's your result. That's it, right? Yeah, like the tester's not going to care about if a device failed, right? Like that I, at that point, I'm like, I don't really need to know that. Or, you know, if you re-ran it for that reason, but I absolutely see the value. Yeah, if it's my test that failed, that's what I want to know and don't want to be, you know, overburdened with all that noise. So that makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah. And I kind of wondered how that would work with like, cause device fail, right? They physical, virtual, they all and fail they all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it definitely becomes a challenge for your team, but then also making sure that, yeah, you're filtering out that noise, um, which makes a ton of sense. I, I want to double down on what Benavar said, right? I think, um, you know, uh, probably who are, Probably uh, all of us are providing platform for other teams to run uh, some something on. In our case, we are running automation. Um, 
it, it's like security or other other cases. When things work, there's no complaint. But when there is uh, even a low level of failures, then and it's an infrastructure, it, it becomes an infrastructure problem. Developers soon lose confidence in the system, and I think it's very very important to kind of keep that as top of mind when you're designing something to 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 not have the infrastructure um, uh, noise or as a even a low level of failures um, impact what the developers are seeing. Again, come back to, oh, your infrastructure is tricky, and that's why you know I had to keep rerunning this over and over again. And we have found like um, even a 1% failure rate is enough to lose that confidence. It has to be very, very less um, compared to what they are running overall, and especially in PR situations. And this is why this is this part about separating out the device failures from um, the actual test case failure or product failure is really important. Here we're talking about device failures, which is something we kind of control, right? Because it's within the realm of automation. But there are um, failures which can be considered infrastructure. And what I mean by infrastructure, I mean, they are not related to the test itself or the validation of the test. That failure is because something that the test depended on did not work as it was supposed to. So like maybe the test is talking to some service to, to do something and that service has an issue and now it's responding with an error. Right? That can make a test fail. And we also provide, because uh, the same issue with devices can happen with that. If your test rely on some third party service that has frequent failures, similar to devices, if you are not able to, to say this is an issue related because of, of <laughs> of a server issue. Um, and, and then maybe we should retry automatically when this happened, uh, because we know it's an infrastructure issue. Uh, if you don't have a mechanism to do that, you end up again having noise in your result, loss of trust, and a fallback to retry everything, right? Um, and so we do provide mechanism through failure analysis plus test action. So the, the two bugs I, I mentioned earlier, if you mix those two together, through failure analysis, we are able to have people define patterns of certain failures and say when those patterns of failure happen. So you, it's even outside of the test. So it's a completely generic system. It's a UI, you go, and you can say, this is a pattern of failures based on the data reported or the, 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 the logs, the, 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 log, the, the line of logs. Uh, and say when this type of thing happen, you know, classify this test as an, uh, I mean, this result as a, an issue related to infrastructure. And maybe we try it for up to three times, as long as the infrastructure issue keeps happening. Uh, so we do that automatically with device issues, but we do have a mechanism for people to define patterns that relate to third-party dependency they, they themselves use, which are not ours. And so that lead to them um, to then them not having noise in their test result because of the third party services having failures from time to time. I I love that you both mentioned like that trust factor, right? Because like yeah, your your customers are customers of like their engineers across Netflix that are building. You want your systems to work so that they continue to use that and build great testing around what they're building, um, so that we're shipping, you know, great products to Netflix customers. Uh, what I, th- I realized too is you also said that if a device fails, that it would you know run again and it would just look like your test like ran slowly. Like so, as if I'm that engineer, it just looks like it ran slow. Is there a bigger like? Have you found that there's a bigger threshold for like tests running slow that people are that's okay? Like because that could be a trust breaker too if things are starting to run slower and slower over time that I could get frustrated on my end. But do you feel like there's that's actually a, maybe a little more forgiving? What we have seen in most cases, people are not running tests which are five minutes long. Most tests tests are a few seconds to a minute. A minute is, again, not very, very common from what we have seen. So when you retry those test cases and you're running locally, the threshold would be, they'll be much more sensitive to these thresholds on, oh, a five-second test is taking 30 seconds to run. So there is a lot of sensitivity around it. Um, But... uh, and, and what we have also seen is that if tests are run in an automation system, parallelized completely, 
then you know the overall test time that or, or how often the retry becomes a smaller factor of how much a developer has to wait so the sensitivity we we try to focus on is really um on or i should say when tests are run in automation completely out of the of the developer's control that is when you know um uh, this, this, we try to keep sorry i'll rephrase it um the that that threshold for the time when multiple tests are run in parallel is different than when tests are run in a local environment and for the local environment we do have to work with developers to figure out are these becoming a pain point a few tests running here and there for for um you know 30 extra seconds has not caused that kind of pain point um in terms of saying hey something is fundamentally broken because people are used to having builds take uh, sometimes five minutes or ten minutes. So this is part of the build test cycle that you know developers are used to, and 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 small incremental times don't really impact that much. So there's always a caveat, but for the most part, this holds true. I would add to that uh, the fact that it's not because the automation system is able to handle infrastructure issues. Um, that it becomes an excuse to allow infrastructure issues to live, to exist. Uh, the idea is uh, the system allows them to happen without impacting the user while we fix them. Right? So, um, so the goal is always to fix any infrastructure issue uh, so that there's no retry. There should not be retry. Uh, we, we can hit boundaries or limits, uh, like on devices. So, Issues on devices can be related to uh, bugs on our side or handlers and things like that, which can be fixed. Uh, Sometimes we hit walls, like what is just, you know, uh, this SDK from this uh, manufacturer um, it has this known bug. And so once in a while, it does this. And after after running a thousand tests of it, you know, after starting the Netflix application a thousand time of it um, in a row, uh, in a spe- specific manner that, you know, Users don't do, but we do for automation. It, it will stop, you know, working. Uh, so you have to kind of restart it. Um, you're talking about older devices that you know manufacturer will not want to to upgrade patch anymore. But Netflix still on it, and so we need to still test it. Uh, and so this is things that we have to live with. And in a way, we trying is the best we can do. The alternative is to have noise in the result and loss of trust. And and uh, and then loss of efficiency in people looking through their results, but but everything that can be fixed should be fixed always. Before we jive, jump into picks, you all have thought about this for a while, like diving into building a platform around automation testing. What advice would you give to maybe another company or team or individual diving into starting from scratch and building up a platform around automated tests? What's some you know piece of advice that you would leave them with? Uh, we 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 did touch to some of those points in the uh, say the challenges or or, or goals. The, the very important part is to be able to have your system, I mean, we just touched it, separate infrastructure issues from test issues so they don't impact uh, the, the, the users. This is one of the key, key aspects here. Um, testing is about finding failures. Right? You, testing is, is testing failures and not testing success. So if failures are injected from means that are not related to uh, what you're testing, it's not good. So that's a very important aspect. Uh, but then with, with some uh, looking back as well, um, you know, I mean, we mentioned earlier the balance between giving flexibility to the users, but, but there's also some balance on our side, which is uh, we don't want to give too much. So we want to give the right balance, which is the one where the user feels he can do whatever he wants. But uh, sometime you might be, so you, if you don't know really where the good balance is, you either are you too constrained or not enough constraint. And when you give uh, too much constraint, you kind of have a, a more direct feedback, which is you might feel, I mean, if you listen to your users or if you really get your hand dirty and, and do what your user do so you feel the pain, which is an important aspect as well, is to use your tools. Um, then you might get a more direct feedback as, okay, I, I need too much constraint. But when you don't give enough uh, constraint, 
because you want to give it flexible. This takes longer uh, uh, to realize uh, because I mean that that maybe you went too uh, flexible here. Because down the line, what's going to happen is that you will want to build something new, some new features, and that new feature will need to rely on some semantic, you know, some 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 concept uh, that maybe like some things being reported in some manner. And if there is not a unified way, so something has been abstracted, constrained in a way in, in the way it's supposed to be reported, um, you will not be able to build on it in a generic way. And then you have to decide, okay, well, maybe I should, I should have abstracted that, so let, let's add an abstraction, this constraint. But then you need to migrate people to it. And that takes a lot of time and effort to migrate all your users to, them, to your new abstractions. Uh, and so it, it, thinking hard about uh, the balance between the, for the abstraction, flexibility versus you know, abstraction uh, is very important. We haven't mentioned that, but you need to think a bit about your data store. When tests are run, if you want to have a generic system that people can just use for any reason, you don't know necessarily what's going to be reported to it. By that, I mean, obviously, there are things, and this is where you know, having more constrained abstraction is important, that are, is always going to be needed, like a result, you know, a name for a test, or, you know, a few things like that, right? Duration, maybe. Uh, but there are things that maybe the tester uh, want to save an information. Oh, like this is uh, how fast this went. This is uh, the frame rate of this, you know, that they want to report so then later they can uh, filter test on it, uh, do some aggregation and things like that and, 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 and look. And so you want your system to be very flexible into the data it can ingest. And so this has also an impact on the choice of your data store. I'll go back to what you were asking, what advice you would give. Uh, I think in, in, in a very, very narrow sense, you, I think you want to think about automation and you want to think about um, not starting writing a lot of test cases, but incrementally building towards going there. I think it's, it's kind of the virtuous cycle. Once you see the benefit, I think you will start doing more of it. And, um, you know, every, I think every, team, everybody wants to do automation. It is just that it becomes a lot more complex and uh, in terms of maintaining the system or the value you might get from it. Sometimes the question is, like, I'm running all this test, it's always failing. I'm going to merge it anyway because it's going to be a false failure anyway, right? When it comes to that point, it's, you have lost the battle, right? So you, you might, this is why they're thinking about resilience and starting small. And, and making the test cases that you really care about, either it's for a system or for your product, um, give, the test giving good signals about catching real bugs, then you know, and if, if, if 10 test cases are not able to run constantly and passing all the time and failing only when there's a product failure, then if you add 100 test cases, while it is good, you will be stuck with trying to figure out why the test failed if you have a 10% um, a sporadic failure rate, then you are going to pretty soon give up on writing test cases and it becomes you know, a, a something that you don't want to do and it's going to be a pain point. You're going to mentally think, oh, this is not something that I would like to do because it's not fun for me, right? So I think in, in some ways, starting small, having a good PR system where to catch real product bugs will incentivize you, the developers around you to say, hey, this is going to catch me. This is going to be a value add for me. And once you get to a value add, then there is more investment from around around everyone. A culture gets created where you want it, not necessarily forced upon you for having an automation. And I think having that kind of environment lets you build on more and more of this uh, virtuous things that was going to help you in the long run at scale. But I think um, you know if you add, like you want to go fast and you want to add a lot of test cases and they are not really of good quality, it becomes a pain point. Then, you, then you're left with 
convincing everyone, please use the automation because it's good for you. It's like, no, it is not really good for me. So that, that, that is what you want to fight um, and, 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 and go with uh, building good resiliency in the beginning. I really like that too, is like you start small in order to get to that big point. But if you try and be like, we need to solve all the problems, it's, it's like it won't get there anyways. You're almost competing with that. I, I really like that. Well, let's uh, dive into picks. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to share picks of things that we've found interesting that we want to share with our listeners. Janaki, do you want to share your picks for this episode? Sure. Um, I have two. I was thinking of two. One is a podcast I listen to, uh, and I think your listeners are all podcast listeners. That's how they are listening to this. It's called Hidden Brain. So um, for uh, people who don't know, this is about uh, psychology and how, how our mind works. And it's fascinating. You can understand things about yourselves and, and um, where other people are coming from. So I highly recommend it. And I, I love it all the time. And the other one I'm watching now is Junior Great British Baking Show. So it's, it's also a fun, fun show for people who have not watched uh, things in Netflix. This is a fun thing I would recommend. Right on. Benoit, what do you have to share? Uh, on my side, I've been watching, starting to watch uh, Sandman on Netflix, and I, I really enjoy it. So um, um, I would recommend it. I would think of uh, restaurants as well. I like to go to restaurants from time to time. And uh, one of my favorite restaurants right now, which is, you know, uh, in the area, <laughs> in Saratoga, it's called Hero Ranch Kitchen, and it's very good. So I do definitely recommend people to checking it out. <laughs> right on. I have two picks to share as well. One funny enough is a TV show that's not on Netflix, but it's uh, called Blackbird. It's a crime drama that it's it's a limited series on Apple TV. It's based on a true story. Uh, the story was really, really well done. And it is now available to binge watch. When I first started it, of course, it was going to the weekly release, which is so frust frustrating. But I'm happy now if you want to go watch it, you can see it all at once. And then my second pick is a little device that helped me uh, recently. I was struggling to match colors of paint in my house. I was wanting to just touch up a few walls and it was really hard to get the right colors. And, you know, I tried the trick where you take a paint chip in, I took it to Lowe's, they mess it up three different times. And I finally was like, this is really frustrating. So I tried this device called Nick's color uh, sensor and it's, it works amazing. It You just put it against the wall and it gives you suggestions for the paint color. And you try it in different spots and, and the one that pops up the most is probably likely the closest to it. So I did that once and was able to actually match the color almost perfectly. So this device is probably a lot cheaper than the one at har hardware stores, but uh, it seemed to work better for me. So I uh, really highly recommend that one. Thank you, uh, Janaki and Benoit, for joining us on the episode. This was such a like, informative deep dive on automation at scale. I know I even learned even more about the depth that we have uh, at Netflix. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? For me, it, uh, the most easiest LinkedIn. So you can search my name at Janaki Ramachandran. It's, it's a name and you can search my name and you will um, uh, you can get in touch with me. Yes, for, for me on LinkedIn as well, Benoit Fontaine. Um, um, if you have the, the meeting note, uh, I guess people can find the names. I'm also on Twitter, although I'm not very active on Twitter, but you know, I'm there. And that would be at Benut, uh, B-E-N-0-U-T-E. -E. Right on. Well, thank you uh, for joining and thank you all for listening to today's episode. We don't uh, often ask for feedback, but if you have feedback for the podcast, leave us a review at whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. You can find us at frontendhappyhour.com and on Twitter at frontendhh. Any last words from Benoit and Janaki? Yeah, it, it was fun talking about this. And I think um, we are super stoked to always talk about this topic. And so it was fun sharing with us. And, and I would love to hear from, our, from your listeners on what they think about automation. Yes, same. I had a, a really great time talking to you, Ryan. Thank you very much for inviting us.